Hey everybody, welcome back to Emerge. My guest on the show today is Nick Jenkel. Um, as I'll, I'll share an introduction to Nick in the actual uh, episode. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. It was um, it combined uh, both a, a good deal of kind of conceptual framing, which I think is 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 very useful if you've been paying attention to one kind of stream of the conversations I've been having on the show around identity politics um, and as Peter Lindbergh coined it, Culture War 2.0, uh, conversations you can look back to with, as I said, uh, Peter Lindbergh, also with Benito, Bonito Roy, and the, the, the three-person conversation with uh, Jordan Greenhall and Bonito Roy, uh, all kind of are exploring similar territory um, as we get up to in this conversation. And so uh, it was both some conceptual sharing as well as some co-exploration. Both Nick and I went out to the edge of our thinking and, and brought back, I think, some useful ideas. So uh, please enjoy this conversation with Nick Jenkel. Welcome back to another episode of Emerge. This time on the show, I'm joined by Nick Jenkel. Nick is an author, professional speaker, leadership futurist, and pioneer in transformational leadership. His recent book, Spiritual Atheism, is an attempt to reconcile spiritual and contemplative practices and experiences with science into a robust human operating system that he refers to as spiritual atheism. I reached out to Nick after reading his recent article on Medium called Hacking Identity Politics to Save Our Species, which I'm hoping to unpack with him in this conversation. Obviously, you can tell by the title that cuts across a lot of the different conversations that we've been having on the show. Um, the other uh, point at which uh, Nick and I have encountered each other is also on a kind of a metamodern discussion listserv. And so we have all of these sort of uh, pieces weaving together. And so I, I, I'm hoping that this will be a very um, fun and, and joyful and interesting conversation for the both of us. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of different places that we could start. I think what I'd like to do first is just to create a kind of conceptual ground from which we can just jam in this conversation. Um, so I thought I would begin by asking, you know, generally, like, what, what is spiritual atheism? And specifically, how might this vision of a human operating system uh, help us approach or resolve or work with the triple threat that we've identified on the show that's identified by, you know, the metamodern community of existential risks, exponential technologies, and disrupted society. What, what's what's the what way in does spiritual atheism open up for us? So yeah, big talk first off. Um, so we all know that there's a lot of things hitting us at the same time, and um, it, we get, I think a lot of people have the sense that the modern world, the enlightened, rational, reasonable. Um, scientific metric type reality that's really done a lot of good for us as a whole in many ways seems to be unable to cope with some of these sort of discontents of modernity um, 
which are now showing up in what people call existential risks. So that, for me, means climate change, but it also means air pollution. Um, it mm. means depression, stress, backache, um, species, you know, biodiversity losses, all these things which have really kind of been externalities of modernity. They haven't been counted in to the growth of GDP, um, the growth of science as a way of understanding the world and creating knowledge. Um, but these externalities are sort of coming back as systems tend to do and sort of biting us on the ass and the cheek all at the same time, you know, really in our face. Uh, so today I spoke to a friend, uh, a wisdom teacher in Melbourne, and it was 43 degrees centigrade. Um, mm. And then you see pictures of, of the Midwest where it's um, minus 60 Fahrenheit. Sorry, I changed between mm-hmm. centigrade and Fahrenheit there. <laughs> so, um, Thank you. Yeah. so we're getting really like a lot, of, you know, it's getting up front and personal. And um, having been in the, in the scientific fraternity uh, myself, I went on a very difficult journey, I, I, find, I have found, to get beyond science and even beyond postmodern understandings of science to find something, some form of truth that can't be deconstructed and can't be um, mm. claimed as being some kind of privileged political stance, some ideology. And when you live in that land for long enough, it's 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 quite challenging um, to make decisions. Obviously, we have issues with morality. We don't know what morality is in that paradigm. Um, we don't know how to make everyday decisions because all we've got is data and logic. So we're sort of stuck mm. uh, to make decisions about, uh, in the book I talk about circumcising my son. You know, what do I do with that? Mm. I've got some research. I've got some um, claims from some doctors and other doctors. I've got my heart. I've got my ancestral ideologies, religious sort of memes still lurking in me. I've got a wife who's totally against it. You know, that kind of decision mm. is, is we have to make those decisions. And so for me, spiritual atheism says um, we know that science is um, a very powerful methodology um, an approach for creating rigorous knowledge that we're fairly certain about, to some degree, about the material world. So anything that you can measure in matter. Um, but the problem then becomes if you then assume that's all there is, then you end up people like Dan Dennett saying his own consciousness through which he's speaking on a podcast or writing in a book is an illusion, doesn't exist because you can't measure it. Mm-hmm. This is the science, sort of scientismist worldview, um, which I kind of was in it for a while myself, so I've been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and through my own practices of, of spirituality and wisdom and transformation, I realized there's this huge other aspect of us, which people call consciousness, mind, heart, um, interiority, subjectivity, whatever you want to call it. So they've got lots of different names. Um, I believe it not only is an equal to matter and, and and therefore the study of that consciousness, which we know from what we call the wisdom traditions, generally speaking, is an equal guide to life, practical life, as science. And so mm. for me, it's really important to do a couple of things. One is to metaphysically understand that there are two domains of, of being, both of which have a really good methodology for understanding them. One's relatively new, the scientific method, you know, it's a relatively new invention. One's relatively old, which is contemplation, ecstatic experiences, etc. Mm. And 
I guess then the step, the next move is so, so that's a kind of philosophical move, um, and I'm not sure the philosophical comes first. I think the experience comes first. But anyway, so the philosophical move, then there's a kind of um, experiential move to experience in yourself what it's like to have a material being and a material view of life, as well as a conscious experience of life, um, mm. and to understand how the information from those two domains shows up. So it's fairly mm. obvious how scientific data shows up. It, we get data, we get measurements, we get feeds from our phone, or, or we get a study uh, uh, that we read. That's how, how you know metric comes up into our world. And then this, this conscious stuff comes up through intuition, through insight, through ideas, through senses, through felt sense, um, through embodiment, um, nudges, hunches, synchronicities. And I guess the final step of spiritual atheism is not – so you, you philosophically – realize there's these two domains you experientially feel them and then really pragmatically you start to bring them into consciously every choice you make um mm. and so whether it's circumcision whether it's immunization whether it's a business decision whether it's a career decision a love decision you can feel these two streams of information coming flowing into you not, neither privilege, neither better than the other. It's really important for me that in this spiritual atheist worldview, which I could have called it a lot of other things, by the way. So it's just a, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. hanging term for now. Yeah. I don't feel like I have to own it or, or need it to stay that that language. Um, is to feel these two streams coming into us in every second, and to make fully joined up choices. Because although it, I might everything I've said to date might sound like I'm a, dual, a dualist, a believer in two things. I'm actually a radical non-dualist. I believe in only one thing or or everything, um, an absolute ground of being. And so those two modes of, 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 of existence, matter and consciousness, for me are two modes within a non-dual whole. Mm. And so we must never forget, you know, we don't want to spend our time trying to find the pineal gland that Descartes suggested as where matter and mind connect it's it's that it's not that simple or, or easy or that relevant actually mm. because there's only one one thing and, it, and mm. we have to start and end with that so it's it's, it's an as it's a world people call dual aspect uh dual aspect monism or for me dual aspect non-duality um and i think so that's just a kind of the grounding so there's a, there's a strong metaphysical life philosophy grounding and then there's a really strong experiential pragmatic decision making ground you know grounding Mm -hmm. And I guess I wrote the book because I spent a lot of time in the more pragmatic, how do I transform? How do I lead? How do I do all this stuff? And if you don't have a metaphysics that can allow for intuition, for insight, and even to some degree creativity, um, which can't really be accounted for in mechanistic views of cognition and the brain, um, certainly not sort of genuine breakthrough ideas, um, I don't think you can't make you can't pragmatically live fully without at least allowing for those things to be a source of insight, information, and, and knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 I think on the social or political level, we it, we can't, if I'm understanding you correctly, and this is certainly my perspective, we can't actually turn towards and meet the challenges of our time without some kind of competency on a collective level with these more intuitive or contemplative or spiritual faculties of what a human being is. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, maybe could, could you just open that up a, a little bit? I mean, I imagine that most people 
who have been listening to this podcast have already drank in that particular Kool-Aid that, you know, they, they see the need for, uh, that essentially, you know, we're in a race between consciousness and catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so just give us a, 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 a sense for those who haven't been in this conversation, like how, how is it that these capacities that we can develop for our own happiness actually do directly, uh, relate to these larger social, uh, existential issues? Mm. That's a question that's really important that people don't ask, actually. There's one group, as you say, assumes that that's the case. One group doesn't even think that's even possible. I mean, I can't bring it back to... Uh, right now, we're in a situation where there's this sort of category called politics, and maybe within the, the, the university, within academia, you know, social sciences, politics, whatever. And that's a whole... Seen as a, a kind of area. Um, and you go into a bookshop and you buy a book on politics or you buy a book on climate change or you buy a book on you know some form of social issue and then you have this other part of the bookshop and i use bookshop as a as a metaphor because it's actually where knowledge is sold right so it's it's where people mm. go for these things and there's another part of this bookstore called self-help new age mysticism spirituality and they're quite far from each other in every sense and so we exist in this reality where there's a bunch of people who are doing a lot of work on themselves who often get caught into self-development for themselves and, and their own happiness and blissing out and, and all these kind of things. And then in my slightly crass cliche, you walk out the yoga studio and curse the bum on the street um, for being there as they get into a four by four and drive off, you know, into the Hollywood Hills. So that's kind of one issue we've got in, in sort of one ghetto. And then you've got a lot of people out there trying to change the world, politicians, social entrepreneurs, activists who are all about changing someone else and and changing a system as if it's some kind of thing without realizing that a we are all contributing to the system inherently and as soon as we judge someone and angry angry with them it's very unlikely that we're transforming anything um and we're probably projecting a lot of our own personal traumas and pains and patterning onto the situation mm. um and also that the system is a is a collective a crystallization, I think, would be a good term, of lots of individual desires and 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 ideals and and essences. And if we're all collect, if there's if the collective is traumatized by difficult parenting, difficult situations, Holocaust, slavery, a whole bunch of deep patterned trauma, then what we're manifesting in the culture is going to be some version of that. Um, which I actually find has been wonderfully n- turned into a story uh, in a documentary that was released recently um, about the fire festival and and a bunch of people mm. setting up a festival that didn't really exist and influencers selling the festival and people wanting to just hang out with models on a beach um, mm. and the influencers being paid 250 grand you know and it was, it was like an amazing indictment of our times of what people are investing time and energy into, including things like trolling. You know, a lot of this identity yeah. politics thing has come up with a lot of trolling, a lot of anger. And it's amazing how much time people have and energy they have to go and, you know, attack someone online who they don't know. And for all this is kind of like, for me, uh, uh, I realized quite a long time ago that personal development and world development are this, literally the same thing. Um, if you were an alchemist, as above, so below, all that kind of idea that, that the system as a whole is intimately related to the individuals and the individuals intimately related to the system. But part of the modern issue is to be to 
separate those as categories. And you're either a social change agent or you're a spiritual teacher. Well, really, you're the, you're one of the both of those things, and they you know, and they, mm-hmm. they are fluid. They are a fluid experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not two things as one, I guess. In summary. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, beautiful, great, and so uh, I think we've we've done a good job, or you've done a good job of sort of establishing this foundation now, where we can, and and you know, listeners are probably aware of if you've been listening to the show, there are, there are some symmetries, obvious symmetries, and also some important and subtle distinctions and differences with movements of thoughts like uh, like metamodernism or integral which is an attempt to create this kind of synthesis that's beyond materialism and beyond you know, naive idealism or new age BS um, that can actually, and I think this is, this is the twist that I want to do now, is that to, if we can articulate it as an actual perspective that we can kind of hold to, to a certain degree, then we can start to uh, uh, leverage it in different contexts. And, and what, what I really appreciate about you is that you waded right into one of the most hot button <laughs> topics of our time, which is identity politics. Obviously, it's super up right now, you know, mm. the culture wars. Um, you mentioned uh, the culture war 2.0, mimetic tribes perspective. We've had Peter Lindbergh on the show. Um, and I just, you know, thought that you did a really great job of representing this kind of, uh, and I don't know what 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 necessarily the, the, the tribal perspective I would fit it in, but maybe maybe it's integral, right? Where you kind of are articulating this perspective in relationship to the identity politics, what's going on, the culture war. And so um, I'd love to spend a good deal of time just sort of uh, looking at the phenomenon of identity politics from this conceptual, this perspective that we've established. So, uh, you know, what's your take on what exactly is going on with identity politics? Mm. Well, I'll tell you something. The, the, the essay I wrote took a long time to write. And mm. that, to me, is a signal to myself that it's a really condensed and intense space. It's mm-hmm. hot. It's hot as in it's hot for everyone. You know, it, it challenges some of our fundamental understandings of who we are and where we're going. Um, it, it involves a, a lot of compact, huge amounts of complexity compacted into one thing called identity politics. So you've got actual yeah. politics, you've got understandings of psychology and identity and who I am. You've got uh, left and right. So you've got c- sort of communal energies versus conservative energies. Um, it's kind of like, almost like a, I don't know what they, you know, like a kind of, it's like an event horizon for everything that's gone beforehand to come and sort of mm. blow us up in this thing called identity politics, which obviously came in the last 18 months, two years has become a, a thing that people talk about. It's, you know, it's headlines. It's, it's, um, it's, it's helped some philosophers become, you know, household names. Um, it's got issues in the legal systems around, you know, gender and, and, um, uh, different forms of biological versus culturally constructed identities. And there's a whole religious piece of it as well around, um, uh, what, what our religion tells us about who we are as identity. So it's, it's, it's massive. It took me a long time to even get a beginning to understand what I thought about it. Um, I think the, the most important thing to remember 
from a whether it's an integral or spiritual atheist worldview or or any other form of 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 consciousness plus matter mm, way of thinking is that identity is both something really important to form psychologically um because identity is us forming our own self boundary um our own cell membrane that's different from our parents and from others whilst it's obviously often a mimic of of theirs um but it's also a psychological stage or process that we then attempt to move beyond so that we're not hooked into the limitations of our identity and that's the most important thing that 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 if we're identifying with any any group or culture or meme then in some ways it's some form of patterning and conditioning that is probably protecting us in some way and if but if we don't need that protection anymore it's probably limiting us in some way mm-hmm. and that's just an important thing to remember before we get all excited about you know what's what's there is 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 identity is an important phase uh, the individuation that that uh, jung and others speak of um and then the very point of of almost all wisdom practices is to somehow free ourselves from the limits of identity um Mm-hmm. and while still mm-hmm. honor, we're still honoring it you know that's one of the things i love about the integral movement is we transcend and include so we we honor what came identity rocks it's really helpful i loved being a jew a hipster um mm. a left wing guy <laughs> um uh, a design aesthete um an author a speaker i loved all those things while i was becoming them if that makes sense but i don't identify with any of them anymore. And and mm-hmm. that's, I think, the most important thing to, to realize. So whilst it looks like the identity politics piece is a big explosion in the political world, it's also something that's showing us the limits of our understanding of Western's understanding of psychology, as in the Western rational psychological understanding of, of self. Um, and this is one of my great challenges that I go into in, in my book around psychology, which, and I studied psychology and I was in psychotherapy and my mom's a psychotherapist, is that Western psychology, in its urge to remove any forms of sort of vitalism and spirituality and some kind of fluffy religious stuff, took out um, until the transpersonal piece, which is still very minor and 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 uh, tiny, it took out um, anything other than the self. So it reified the self, and there was no ground of being anymore. There was no non-self. There was no um, infinitude. Mm-hmm. There was no absolute. There was nothing to z- dissolve your ego slash ego identity identity into in Western psychology. It's kind of like the endpoint is identity. And so I think the energy politics piece also shows us the limits of Western psychology and how it, it can't really be transcended, as well as obviously loads of stuff about politics and, and the end of left. I think it also shows us a little bit about the end of left and right wing politics, and they're no longer mm-hmm. really that meaningful um, anymore. Um, so it's, that's why I think it's such an amazing area to engage in is because it has so much. Uh, yeah. it, it's a signal and a symptom of of all sorts of deep drivers, all sorts of things going on. And it's, that's why it's complex. Yeah, yeah. It really does seem like this kind of flash point that transcends and includes every level of analysis, right? Mm. Like, you know, I think uh, 
with without the lens that I have from my own spiritual practice, like I I don't I, I it's hard to imagine what I how I would see this kind of culture war that's happening. I imagine that I would sort of reify whatever identity I most identified with and sort mm-hmm. of perform that because mm-hmm. there's nowhere else to go if you don't right. have some space beyond or before <laughs> identity. Exactly. And so it's it's if you kind of step out of the the Twitter flaming and, and the kind of BS that's going on right now, it's it there's there's a way in which it's actually, from my perspective, quite um, beautiful and hopeful that we're collectively attempting to uh, sort of grapple with the limits of our Western given cultural psychology. And it's not even like any more left and right. Like in the Mimetic Tribes article, you know, identified like 30 different tribes. And I, I, I imagine that's just like version two. And that if, if it were to continue to go, you know, more information, more fracturing, more identities, more diversity. But that, you know, the what what I'm what I feel from your article is a real attempt to ground this other perspective, the spiritual atheism, this integral perspective, in a way that we can then start to like be in conversation with this phenomenon of identity politics. And so, um, you know, you talk about the need to hack identity, which in and of itself, depending on your frame, could be quite a provocative (laughs) idea, right? I think that a lot of folks within this world think of their identity as something that's like more or less sacrosanct you know that 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 uh, you that, that that's unknowable by the other and that essentially resolves itself into power dynamics mm-hmm. so what and, and also i want to uh, name that you said transcend and include so we're not like just getting rid of identity but like what is the uh, and, and, and i guess i'll say one more thing sorry is is that you identified the individual move which uh, you know, it's easy to say, like, uh, 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 and and often difficult to do, uh, just dropping your identity, going beyond, going somewhere else mm-hmm. that is, as I said before, beyond. Um, what does that mean to start to take that move into the cultural discourse and into the political discourse? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much, as you were talking, I was writing notes and lots of things coming up for me. I mean, we could take that in so many different directions. Yeah. Um, so the personal move to hack our identity, I think, is really the the secret of the wisdom traditions. Pretty much, it is we've got this thing called identity. You think you're a father. You think you're a Hindu. You think you're a whatever it is. And then through rigorous and disciplined inner work, including healing of, of trauma within, which I believe is a fundamentally spiritual and psychological process. And that's what got me into this work in the first place is trying everything Mm. else other than spirituality to heal my trauma as a materialist atheist, and then realizing there was nothing. (laughs) So the only thing I could do was then go inside and find this source of, 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 of what I will call limitless love for want of a better term, um, with which to heal my trauma. And so that personal move is to go, okay, I'm going to hack through this personality, this, this something that I've has got me to where I've got to. It's protected me. It's helped me control a crazy world. I've called myself X and I belong to this X tribe. Um, 
and we start to distance ourselves from it and give ourselves, as you said, spaciousness around it. Um, and then we start to realize it's not the hold on it is not as hold on, its hold on us isn't as big, and therefore our hold on it isn't as big. And then we can start to become playful with identity. And and um, so my wife will call me different names depending on which version of me is showing up. Um, so mm. Henry is is short for Heinrich, my my German grandfather, and my sort of rigor, discipline, military precision, and general mm. desire for everything to be under control. Um, and then she called me Hampstead if I'm being a kind of Jewish prince, uh, you know. And so, mm. with the, with this inner work, we start to be able to play with our identity, laugh about it, and that's a major step is to be able to distance ourselves enough to laugh at it and then have the consciousness to know that we've slipped into an, an identity role. So that's kind of like the personal work. And what that then allows us to do when we're in a public domain, a public square, a town hall, whatever, whether that's Facebook, whether that's um, in a meeting, whether that's um, you know at uh, Occupy, you know whether we're in a protest, whatever it is, we can then be fully committed and devoted, but also unattached to our personal, as you said, power within the dialogue, within the conversation, mm. which then allows us to have profound compassion for other people who are maybe locked into an identity experience um, version of themselves. Um, we start to be able to be generous and give up our own stuff, our own patterning, our own attachment. Um, and we start to be able to be just super playful, which is kind of like the best of the postmodern thing. The best of deconstruction is the playfulness that you can start to have with different ideas and ideologies and different systems. Um, but this, but you're not cast into the moral vacuum of, of, you know, the death of God, because you've still got one abiding truth underneath all the deconstructed narratives that are small truths you've got this abiding sense that we are one and we are love and if you serve that in in you in the moment uh bhakti bhakti yoga devotional practice of serving that oneness that love in the moment it will guide you and the words start to break down obviously but it will guide you to act in ways which help heal conversations help heal rifts not create more of them ultimately you know, super pragmatically, like you've got a super angry, white, challenged man who feels like his whole dignity is being ripped apart by not being able to go to the toilet in his own gendered cubicle, um, being at the last the back of the queue because the Syrian guy was there now working harder and longer hours. Um, and you've got to feel the pain that person's in and why they are now lodging into that identity area. At the same time, you have absolute compassion for the desire to equalize, to have justice amongst all human beings and, and, and the great heart of the left in its greatest version of itself. Mm. And that's where the, that, that, you know, that's where the personal becomes political, um, um, is in that move from my own practice to showing up in a different way. And that means having quite a lot of discipline and consciousness around social media around um reactivity without around flaming and even in the the community of metamodernists and the community of people in this world i see enormous amounts of identity driven triggering and and personality driven mm. triggering and reactivity and trolling and it's it's slightly more intelligent and posher as i would say 
but not that much. You know what I mean? And and mm. for me, which then brings us into the next piece of, of of is you know if we can't show up in these conversations and find our way back to a ground and find our way back to ourselves, the you know the what I just I often distinguish between character and personality, uh, for want of a better term. Um, if we can't then find back to our true character or our, our purpose and come back to a conversation and get back into dialogue and move out of discussion and 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 come out of being triggered and inflamed and but you've just insulted my tribe or you just insulted my manness my westernness my cambridge educatedness whatever i've identified with if i can't do that mm. if i can't embody that version of me then my question is am i ready to be in these conversations at all hmm um, and that's my own harsh uh, discipline for myself. Um, I'm not saying everyone has to have that thought, but I do, you know, this is like a practice what you preach moment. If there ever was a practice what you preach moment in the history of the world, with the speed that, of which triggering and reactivity can travel through the digital world and how much hate can can amplify in mm. overnight, um, mm. if there ever was a time to be fully grounded in our own mastery of ourself i don't mean control of ourself i really mean mastery um this is it if we're intellectuals mm -hmm. public or otherwise mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it, and i would echo that like there have been times when i've actually uh not shared interviews that i've done because i didn't want to amplify some of the underlying kind of dynamics that were actually a part of that conversation uh and I think it's that's kind of part of what you're saying is like you, you you're 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 putting out whatever you're putting out, and it's more than the words you say. It's it's what's in your heart, what 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 wounds are being triggered in that moment. Um, and I also want to, you know, in talking to people like Ronan Harrington, I think the other move is to just be extremely vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? Whether or not you're actually like aligned with something beyond identity. But if you're contracted and you can name that contraction and just like be in it as a human, that I think is also another way that we can kind of uh, dance in this conversation. Because, you know, from my perspective, I've been, you know, I've lived in a freaking monastery. I've done all this stuff. I still like on a daily basis, hourly, if I'm really paying attention, you know, contract into some part of myself, some identity. And so, uh, and, and, and what this, what this raises for me is like, like the, the, these ideas, it's like, uh, if I take a longer view, I'm like, okay, like the arc of evolution and consciousness evolution is long. Uh, we'll all get there eventually. And this identity politics is kind of the, the oscillating working out of some of these tensions that have probably laid dormant in our cultural DNA for, for since time immemorial. But at the same time, like the world's on fire, right? Like there's a real sense of, I think, at least in my world, a real sense of urgency that we find a way to stop Mm, uh, using all our energy in this sort of way and, and start collaborating and creating something uh, together that can really uh, meet the challenges of our time. And so uh, I, I don't quite hear you saying like, okay, do this inner work. And then when situations arise, like you can dance in them. There is some kind of like moving forward and out into the worldness of what you're saying. And I wonder if you have any like, what's your perspective on that? Like, you know, I see conversations go on on Twitter, people are flaming or on Facebook, uh, you know, identity politics is kind of quote unquote happening in front of my eyes. What do your, what's your sense of like, 
what's the role responsibility of people who are uh, at least endeavoring, if not actualizing this space beyond identity. Mm. So I think there's a couple of things that I heard in your question, which I'll mm-hmm. come to sort of vaguely separately. One is absolutely I'm not saying go and sit on a rock for 20 years, perhaps you'll become enlightened and then go and do some good work. You know, the old model, um, mm-hmm. you know, the the Hindu path of have have your children, do your stuff in the real world, whatever it takes. Then give up everything and go and wander and then maybe you'll you'll you can teach as a guru at some point later. Um, the world is a flame, really is. And um, um, I do believe everyone should become a social entrepreneur of some sort now. And that can be a social entrepreneur, um, a social activist, a so- whatever. But a, a purpose-driven leader, uh, uh, doer, you know, being doing stuff in the world, whether it's going volunteering at a soup uh, kitchen for homeless people or, you know, leaving your job and creating a, a social enterprise, just something. We need to do something. And we need to do it now because we, things are really, really hotting up. And of course, at the same time, um, our wisdom, our heart tells us that it will all be okay to some degree in the end. We may not be a species that's okay. We might well go down. But nature as a whole, the, the universal consciousness will be okay. And somewhere between that, those polarities, that, that is, is the creative tension, what I call palantonic tensions, palantonic harmonies, in which all wisdom has to come is from this um, transcendence of polarities into, um, into uh, what seems like, as Heraclitus says, what seems like opposites is actually one thing and can be brought together in a harmony, a creative harmony. So we need to be super urgent, do stuff now, get involved, vote, protest, stop using plastics, um, try and walk more, eat less meat, you know, whatever, all that stuff. Um, dedicate your life to something of purpose, which I've done, um, whilst no, relaxing every day into the ground of all being, really realizing it will all be okay to some degree, even if that means our death, um, life of some sort, I believe, will go on, and tend to our own garden as well. And that means staying resilient, uh, some kind of level of self-care without it becoming a kind of gloop trope of it's all about mm. self-care, you know, some degree of self-care, some degree of processing. I, I have a wonderful biology, which I've given it permission. If I have not processed stuff during the day, because I'm busy being a dad, being a writer, whatever, then wake me up at night at three in the morning. And I'll do it then. And so I kind of have a kind of agreement with my biology that I will process live as we go through life. Um, mm. And so I do believe a certain amount of self-work has to have been engaged in before you can really be a systems agent because we project so much of our own biographical life and our trauma and our issues with our dad and our mom and our the bully at school and the system as a whole and science onto our social change efforts. I mean, so much of our personal stuff is worked yeah. out in our activism. So I think a little bit of self-work first. I'd say, you know, go to the retreat center first before you go on the streets rather than the other way around. But, you know, mm-hmm. what difference is it's, a, as you say, an oscillation between the two anyway. So it, but just we have to do both, and you have to do it every day. A bit of out there work, a bit of in here work. So that's kind of one piece of that um, uh, puzzle. 
but I do think this. Um, I think you put it beautifully that the the ten- oscillating tensions between that have probably been there since the time immemorial are being played out on the scale of the kind of technologies and scale of organizations we have the un nato unilever procter and gamble google these are enormous scaled organizations and so the level of these work what used to be you know i've actually just been part of a community co-creation of a school and even in that school vaguely agreed around a purpose of a kind of progressive psycho-spiritual education there's essentially a left wing and a right wing and ironically, mm. for me, I'm on the right wing. As um, mm. uh, in some in some ways, <laughs> I'm into like progression and moving it forward and making it cool. And like a, it's a uh, you know a, sp- a kind of orange spa dynamic energy it, it, for me. Mm. And usually, I'm on the left wing f- f- in my world. Um, and so you know, and I believe from my understanding of neurobiology, there's a I could talk about these two energies, these two brain networks, these two archetypes within us, which I call uh, protector and connector. Um, or you can call it uh, control and protect mode or create and connect mode, or you can be posh and say executive control network or default mode network, um, tightness, looseness, looseness. There's a lot of these versions of the same polarity. And I do believe they're inherent within us. There is a part of us that will be protective and controlling because that's how we survive. And there'll be a part of us that's connective, co-creative, conscious, awake, wise, empathic. And that's how we grow and move um, towards thriving and they're an antagonistic pairs. Um, and I find it fascinating that we can only walk because we have triceps and biceps. We have hamstrings and quads. If we just had one muscle, mm. we couldn't go anywhere. And I think we do have these inherent tensions within us. And I was actually just rereading some Eric Erickson um, thinking and his eight stages of, of man. And I suddenly realized he's he was saying something very similar to mine that the stages he describes um, which could broadly be mapped onto um, uh, Ken Wilber's or, or Spiral Dynamics or, or really any of these stage-based understandings. He said, you know, you, you you step into the next stage of your consciousness through resolving polarity within. Mm. Um, and maybe what, what this identity politics is saying in a very inelegant way, but crisis is often inelegant, when I melted down in my various burnouts and breakdowns, it was never particularly sexy or pretty. Um, maybe this identity politics thing and everything's with it, just like a sucking us all into it in some way, is really, as you say, us at the societal level working out these deep tensions and trying to find a, a, a creative harmony that's a higher order level of complexity than either of the energies that are fighting. Um, so that would mm. mean for me a, a, polit- a politics that understands the benefits of right-wingness entrepreneurship, self-empowerment, mastery, um, hard work, discipline, um, blah, 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 whatever. And then also yeah. a politics that appreciates a desire for equality and flatness and and appreciating each person's value as inherently equal to each other's, whilst also allowing people to be meritocratically better at some stuff than others. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing, I hope, uh, also with Brexit and Trump. These are all signals of... I hope a higher order harmony emerging, but I'm not, conv- you know, I'm, I go through my own oscillations of being hopeful of that and actually, you know, seeing the shutdown, seeing Brexit today, I'm like, really, are we gonna, ever going to get there? <laughs> you know, can we bring it, you know, 
all the guests on your show, if we all came together and brought every bit of resource we had, would we still be able to make a blind bit of difference to this mm-hmm. transformational journey we're on? <laughs> I yeah. don't know. <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Well, so, so, well, so here, I'm, I'm going to push this, I think, a little bit just to see what happens. Um, you know, I think there's a way to see what we're talking about here is that we're um, we're articulating a kind of tribal identity, right? The, the identity of like going beyond identity. Like that's, that is functionally a tribe, I think, Mm. you know, and, and many of the people I've had on my show are kind of like quote unquote members of this tribe. Now, as I've talked about with Peter Lindbergh in our conversation, like this tribe seems to be very um, ambivalent about like being a tribe together, you know, like, because I think of the lack of identity. Um, and, And yet this, this culture war is you know a war for power like the, the the people that are locked in this conflict like you know we can say like oh they see everything as just power dynamics but like there is a way in which things are just power dynamics like that is a a way sure. to see the world and like this this um post identity identity that we see as having a particular wisdom to bring to bear and presumably like i know for me speaking personally like i want more people to see the world this way like um and and how, how do we begin to wield our power as a post-tribal tribe <laughs> in such a way that we can actually inform the unfolding of the culture where or like one of the things you said is like you know there's this kind of oscillating almost like circling the drain of this event horizon of a crisis it's like is our role um uh, to accelerate that crisis because we trust that there's something beyond is that how we wade into this like how is it that we think of our role not just as individuals but as a kind of tribe in relationship to all of these different power dynamics and and you know identitarian sectarian uh groups mm. again massively rich question and thoughts and and again i wrote down like five different directions um what you first said made me laugh about uh, you know the 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 famous quote Woody Allen Groucho Marx I don't want to be part of a tribe uh, that wants me as a tribe you know the great neurotic statement um, and um, that's uh, that ambivalence that we have about this non-tribe tribe is because we don't really want to be part of a tribe because we see it as limiting um, but again I, I I like like what a word that came to mind as you were speaking was fellowship which has been a word that's come up a lot in the last week. So I'm just bringing it into this conversation and it immediately feels better than tribe to me. And, and it, obviously we're tweaking around mm-hmm. words, but there is a difference. There's a sense of difference of, yeah. of you and I are a fellowship. We don't, I don't have to defend the tribe that you and I are in. Um, you can handle yourself. Um, I can handle myself. Um, we're not attached to anything in the tribe, but there is a fellowship and a fellow feeling and a sense of, of support, mutual support, um, you know, if we went onto Facebook, we probably have a hundred mutual friends from all different weird parts of our life um, in this fellowship, and and there is something powerful about that. And um, I don't, I wouldn't want to ever, you know, what the last thing we want to do is is purposefully by trying to blow up our our tribal identity, blow up our sense of co creativity, and the fact that we do we are vulnerable, and we only have a certain amount we can do with our resources, time, energy, capacity. Um, and we do have to work in a, in a much more joined up way. And in fact, um, I, I have actually done some forays into 
bringing people together in this way. I, I attempted to bring together a, what I called a Wisdom Leaders Congress. So everyone who's working as a wisdom teacher of some sort or a spiritually informed philosopher or a spiritually informed social entrepreneur start to come together to map systems, to collective sense make, to not all repeat each other's stuff, not to all create a toolkit for depression, not to all create a toolkit for sacred activism, you know, and compete with each other. But it, I have to say the system didn't seem to be ready for that, which was interesting. Mm. There's a lot of lone, wol lone wolfery in this work. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's very hard to, to see one's own patterning of being a lone wolf. And we all, I think a lot of people in this space crave and yearn for communi communality and working together and co-living and co-working in this high quality, high vibrational, whatever you want to use term for our work together. But, mm -hmm. I, but it's, but we are also, a lot of people are, are lone wolves and it's quite hard to go from a lone wolf to a pack of wolves. Um, you have to make a lot of compromises <laughs> as people who live in communes mm. uh, or yourself mm. in a monastery know, right? It's yeah. Like, yeah, totally. Um, so that's some part of it. I do feel there's fellowship. I do feel um, that there is an important things for us to do together. I just don't know if we found ways to do that yet. Um, and there have been experiments yeah. and there are experiments going on. Yeah. Um, and yet still, you know, I get in, probably once a month, I get invited to some collaboratorium of 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 let's say teal turquoise yellow people um who who we think we are i guess is a better way of putting it um mm -hmm. and actually galvanizing around something has yet to i've yet to see a lot of that happening yeah uh, that real world stuff around budgets and timelines and is it part of your livelihood or is it just a nice project that you'd like to contribute to all that kind of stuff um, mm -hmm. so that's definitely something that I'm very aware of and awake to, and I'm yearning for myself, but also know that if the system isn't ready for that, um, you know, then I'm just available for when it is, um, and whether that's co-living, mm -hmm. co-working, more systemic change processes, whatever, um, that's, I'm available. Um, and then a separate thing you mentioned, or another part of the question, which I think is really interesting and gets a lot of people interested is when we start to look at Trump and and um, populism and whether it's Italy or Hungary or, or Brazil, but also some of the stuff happening in the left, um, whether they're all some kind of attra strange attractors that are blowing up the old system and we need them. Um, mm. That's a sense of mine that's definitely occurring. Like the wisdom of the system is, is you know, making things worse so that we can worse, I, you know, scare quotes worse. Um, so that we can heal, essentially. Um, but I guess where where I've sort of staked a lot of my daily work is in is in leadership to some for whatever reason. Uh, no, not for whatever of, of any type, <laughs> and uh, for a very good reason. <laughs> and so I'm about to share, which is in my understanding of transformation, which I call the, the transformation curve, and people can find that online. I, I hope in some of my articles. Um, which basically is a J-shaped curve. You go down before you go up. You know, you have to de deconstruct and surrender and let go before you get the breakthrough. We go through this period that systems biologists call the edge of chaos, which is the zone of maximum creativity, also the maximum confusion and fear. And the thing that I am very clear on is unless we have leaders who can help people round that curve, round the bottom of the curve and up again, um, at scale, then what we have is people trying to escape the curve and go back up the left-hand side, which is the mm -hmm. kind of make it great again meme 
You know, mm. can we just go back to a time where I was a white 50-year-old and I had a job and I had a great car and everything was okay and we felt like we were growing mm. and, you know, this idealized past that didn't really exist, but if it did exist, it only existed for white people or men or rich people, you know, whatever. Um, and I, I do believe that one of the areas where I feel I can contribute most is is teaching leaders to become the kind of people who can help us round these massive uh, transformation curves. So whether mm. it's giving up meat, whether it's giving up my land and my property, which is enshrined in so much Anglo-Saxon thought, um, we're going to have to give up a lot to take on these existential risks. I think we're all clear on that um, in our fellowship. Um, so therefore we need leaders and teachers who can help people come around the fear and let go of stuff and then come back in for the insight, the aha, the epiphany and mm. move forward where it suddenly feels a lot better again. And anyone who's ever been in an innovation mm. workshop, a creative workshop, a, um, a community will know the feeling of it all disintegrating is not particularly pleasant. One can become resilient to it and learn to love it, but it doesn't feel particularly good mm -hmm. um, when you're crying and alone at four in the morning and you think the world's falling apart. Um, and then you have the breakthrough mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, it's, I get it. I get my insight for the day. <laughs> and I think we need people yeah. who can take us around that in a collective level so we can have those new innovative models of things. I think we're going to need many. It's not going to be one. One of my current things I say to people is there's no silver bullet solutions. AI won't solve it. Reorgs won't solve it. Blockchain won't solve it. There's no simple, let's get McKinsey in and we'll solve this problem with this new trend. We're going to have to bring it all and find things that work at different places and different times. Um, and that's where I think our fellowship can, can help people. And that's why I come back to that embodied mm. The embodied part of the philosophy, this this idea of this letters to young philosophers, which is, we don't need more public intellectuals who who are not embodying their own transformation. Yeah. I don't think we need that. I think it's a model that's let, run its time, um, and I and that's why we need people who who embody a sense of possibility and hope and love and compassion, um, in a way that's you know, it's like we need Gandhi and Mandela and. Um, Martin Luther King on every street corner is kind of where mm. I, I, I get to. Yeah, I think the place that feels interesting to me, I mean, it's almost like you're articulating the role of this post-tribal fellowship as being one of midwifing the other identities through a kind of death and rebirth process. And so it's not so much that we need to accelerate the crisis. Like that's kind of being done anyways, <laughs> yeah. right? Like the crisis yeah. is accelerating. We don't really have to, <laughs> it doesn't need our help with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but what is, there is a need for is to, is for us to act in such a way that we um, use that crisis as a portal into something new instead of as a, a reason to fall back into prior levels of development or, um, you know, like you said, to make, make X great again. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I like that. I like that image of being a midwife because it isn't totally hands-off, right? <laughs> it's actually very like involved to do be. that work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But there is, there is an element of like watching and paying attention and being sensitive, right? Where you're not just like jumping in, you're, you're, you're working with life 
to provide for this emergence. Mm. Damn right. Yeah, having seen it twice occur, uh, personally, <laughs> it's it's a lot going on in those moments. I mean, you know, the mother is the closest they'll probably ever come to death mm. um, than their actual death. So you are playing with life and you are playing with death. You're playing with the, and you're playing with the, the actual the archetype of the transformational curve of, of the letting go of old and the rebirth of the new. I love that. But what you said, when you said the word midwife, a hole just went for me, which mm. is my experience of midwives have been, they are deeply in the feminine, profoundly in the feminine, mm. but act with extremely powerful masculine. It's not like a doula, you're not holding your hands and going, mm, yeah, it's all going to be good. A bit of that going on, definitely. Um, but there's also an incredibly practical part of midwifing. Um, and yet it's not you. You're not the center of the show. But you're mm. also the person that people are looking to to tell them mm. what to do because it's mm. really confusing and challenging and scary. Um, and I think I just, as you said the word midwife, it just went, wow, that is it's such an amazing archetype of this sort of palantonic harmony between masculine and feminine energies. Um, mm. and in some ways between actually now I think about more into it, the conservative versus the progressive there's new birth occurring, but you also want to keep the mum alive and happy. You know, there's, there's, yeah, it's a, and it's also obvious as we know, a profoundly, uh, old archaic mythic role in, mm. in our beings. Like, you know, that's, that's, it's about it's about the you know could well be the first the midwife could be the first coach healer shaman um yeah really really inspired by that um language mm. Mm. nice yeah that feels that feels like a ha like i kind of came into this conversation wanting to hear an articulation of like what what this fellowship post tribal tribe what you know like we're part of part of what i i appreciate and find kind of funny about this, um, you know, uh, group of people, this mimetic tribe is how, uh, how difficult it is to find words for, to describe ourselves, you know, <laughs> like we don't, cause we we're, we're aware of the ambiguity of language. So, uh, you know, I, I, but I, I, I came into this conversation wanting to hear more of like what your feeling of what our role was, if we did consider ourselves to be a tribe. And I, I, I feel satisfied by that image of, being a midwife, at least for today, that feels really like clear and kind of like complete in a, in, in a sense mm, uh, for me. I like it too. So I, like I, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, and so maybe as we come towards the remainder of our conversation, you mentioned a little bit about this letters to a young philosopher. And I think the other, you know, trend that I know that you're paying attention to and that obviously I'm paying attention to and kind of participating in my own small way is this, um, you know, intellectual dark web, this emerging kind of digital public conversational space where, you know, people are having conversations like the one we're having right now. And to some degree, they're having a real impact on people's lives and how they think about uh, what it means to be human and how to relate to the complexity of our time. Um, how would you kind of what's your what's your take on what that role and what the responsibilities of that role are in in this larger context mm. yeah i mean to integrate and transcend um i think the intellectual dark web as a concept 
um, which is only relatively short, you know, less than a year old, I think, in, mm-hmm. officially and as a meme. Um, this idea that you don't have to be a public intellectual who came up through Stanford, Harvard, Oxford. Um, then you've got your BBC show, your PBS show, where you've got all these gatekeepers who are who want only a certain sort of shaped public intellectual. Um, and for me, as someone who's been in that world, uh, both literally been in in an elite university and then being uh, a TV host, mm. the spiritual piece, part of me, which is actually the defining truth that all other truths have reorganized around in my being over the last 15 years, since I came out uh, of the closet, as I've mentioned in some places, uh, the spiritual closet, has made me deeply unpopular <laughs> with those gatekeepers. Mm. Um, mm. I should just give you one tiny little anecdote of that. When we launched the book Spiritual Atheist in the UK last year, where I thought it would really land because it is a very atheistic culture, the UK, fiercely. Mm. Um, mm. One journalist of The Guardian delisted my PR guy just from the title of the book on the email without knowing oh. anything about the book. And he'd been on that list for 10 years. So that's just a kind huh. of a moment of, of, of the, that, the gate. What, what's exciting about the intellectual dark web is that mm. you and I can have big, deep chat right now. I hope it's of service to people. I hope it inspires. I hope it informs. I hope it opens. Um, but we're not having to toe the line of um, CBS, Huffington Post, um, any other media gatekeeper who wants us to keep things to a certain conversation or certain you know a producer of some sort right and that's mm-hmm. amazing and that's what the i mean you know I, I i set up my first business in 1999 because of the digital reality that uh, a quote i often use from this thing called the clue chain manifesto which was published in 99 which is markets are getting smarter faster than most companies another way of saying that mm. is us as intellectuals are getting smarter than those in academia because we're having wonderfully different thoughts and we're practicing and we're entrepreneurs and we're doing stuff and we're trying stuff out. We're not just sitting in ivory tower publishing. So we do have a a potential for a really rejuvenation of intellectuality. And one of the Mm. things I've seen in the last year or two is people want depth again. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're not afraid. Like, so actually I just, uh, I just checked my hacking identity politics to save our species thing on medium. It says it's a 30 minute read. I mean, that's like, wow. It's like the opposite mm. short form. Um, mm. So that's the amazing thing about this um, uh, world is of this intellectual dark web. But I think part of 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 our transformation to, to use those the the right to speak and to have a clear voice and to and to share my thoughts and your thoughts and whatever comes a responsibility that I guess means that we I guess we have to be playing at our most developmentally um, conscious stage of our being and not just yelling. And I, I just, I guess I'm seeing a lot of people who have been given a big platform by the intellectual dark web, perhaps showing up in a sort of slightly regressed version of themselves. Um, mm. And I just think it's, it's, um, it's possibly not very helpful. And I, and I've seen, um, and then people therefore are not always listening to what you're saying. They're seeing how you act, you know, the medium is the message. Um, and it's, I think it's creating in some ways more of the thing, last thing we need anymore, which is sort of outrage. Um, mm. the last thing we need right now is outrage. I don't think it's a helpful energy. Um, um, 
And I guess that's where I, I got this idea of this letter. There's a Rilke book that many people will know, um, Letters to a Young Poet, with some of his most pithy understandings of, of love and, and writing and, and awesome stuff. And I just thought to myself, what would be the letter I would write to myself as a philosopher when I was 20 studying philosophy? And most of all, it would be get in practice embodiment get into your body get into your being mm. show up as the version of you don't just think words are, are some kind of disconnected you know logocentric lo logophilic thing where you don't have mm -hmm. you can you know and it's same with gurus you know you, you you can't separate the guru from the teachings people want to and i just i find it deeply uncomfortable so i, I watched another netflix documentary which i tell you it took me about three weeks, three weeks to process. It it, it really mm. shocked me to my deepest core, which is the documentary on on the Osho. Thing. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the craziness of that journey, which I didn't oh know much God. about. Yeah. Right. So I've read yeah. his books. Thought he was a cheeky, cheeky wisdom, you know, crazy wisdom <laughs> sort of chappy. You know, loved some of his yeah. stuff. And I'm watching his adepts with machine guns patrolling around a retreat mm -hmm. center. I'm like, seriously, dude. And it took. You know, this mm. is my. This is my career, my metier, and I'm seeing one of the great proponents of it of our age in this unbelievable meltdown of group. And it really shocked me. And it took me, I was like, like, you know, I was in that just deconstructing phase for a long time, like trying to, like it was dizzy. I was dizzy a lot of the time. I was feeling sick, nauseous. Um, mm. And so I guess whether you're a guru, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a writer, whether you're a podcast host or interviewer, I guess I, I'd like us to hold ourselves to our, you know, to the greater angels of our nature. But I agree with Ronan Harrington, um, uh, a dear friend, colleague, um, that that doesn't have to, that doesn't stop us speaking or sharing, but it does in, engender a, a radical vulnerability, um, mm. and I guess also a playfulness. That that mm -hmm. did I just say that? Oh my god! Wow, I was fully <laughs> in, you know. Uh, fascist uh, right-wing mode, or I was in my big on, you know, whatever it was, you know, I was in my angry with my dad mode or whatever, a kind of vulnerable vulnerability that then leads to a placefulness that I can say, wow, I'm so in process. You know, I'm in continuous beta. Mm -hmm. I am definitely not cooked. Um, mm. But holding myself out to create the best recipe I can, I guess, in these moments, in these kind of mm -hmm. podcasts. And, you know, for me, that means before we spoke, I spent five minutes devoting everything I say and everything I am on this podcast, not to my own, you know, um, benefits and, and stuff, but to say what needs to be said to help whoever's listening in this particular podcast at this particular moment um, mm. to have some movement, some shift, some positive transformational energy. Nice. And just as a, a small hack, it's not yeah. a massive thing. Obviously there's a lot of depth to, de to devotional practice, but, but, that's what I mean. I mean, you know, let's not think philosophy is something that's, um, words are sort of leaving me a little bit, but let's not see philosophy as a disembodied pursuit of ideas. Let's see it as a deeply embodied practice where ideas are valuable to get us to the next place in our practice or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I would I would add that like if you've made it to the end of this conversation, right? Like you are to one degree or another a kind of philosopher in today's world, right? Absolutely. Like you're you're curious about these ideas, you're exploring at the edge of what is the known is. Um and we're also, you know, 
to some degree or another, public intellectuals. We all have social media profiles. We're all Absolutely. participating in Absolutely. this kind of weird emergent uh, you know, um, space. Some of us have obviously much more influence than others, but we all have influence. And so, you know, I really like that you, you know, a couple of things you say in the article, um, that the, the difference between being wise and smart, mm. right? And like, just to let that sink into your bones and, and see if you know the difference. Like, I, I know the difference between <laughs> being wise and smart because I've tried to be smart. <laughs> and it's not the same <laughs> as what as, as wise, right. you know. It's just it not. It feels different, doesn't it? Uh, it, it, feels it feels very different. different. Body, right? It's a different yeah. part of you being smart than being wise, and 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 yeah, it's a massive distinction to have in your being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so you know, I, I hear you about the the kind of collapse of the gatekeepers. I think that is one of the really fascinating aspects of our time. It's also one of the really dangerous parts of our time. You know, those gatekeepers, although they kind of monocultured the conversation, they also kept some of the riffraff and crazy ideas <laughs> out that, and, and crazy people, you know, people who were actually embodying not a sense of kindness and respect and uh, wishing for the well-being of all, um, who can now emerge as being influential. And so, you know, one thing that comes to mind as you were saying that is like, uh, instead of there being specific gatekeepers it's like we're all kind of gatekeepers mm, now right like both yeah. in our own experience like what are we listening to are we letting in people who are giving us kind of disembodied uh, bs um mm -hmm. and also like are we allowing each other like uh, you know as we participate in these growing networks to uh are we are we can we you know i know gatekeeping is a kind of pejorative term but can we uh, invite each other into being in deeper integrity as we speak into the world and attempt to uh, be influential in whatever way we uh, can be, mm. you know, hopefully for the good, uh, which I, I mm. like that idea because I, I, I don't want to give up gatekeeping completely. <laughs> right. <laughs> in my and the world. gatekeeper yeah. is the guardian, right? The, yeah. the steward of the culture. Of yeah. The, the you know, really, do you, can you, do you have to say that right now? Could you maybe need to go and have some space on your own or come back when you've developed mm. your ideas some more? Um, and I, you know, and there's also a lot of noise, you know, uh, that the gatekeepers took away a lot of the noise. So mm. one of those things I think about the digital world is, yes, I get to have a platform that I didn't have before. And so does 10 million other people. So there's a, mm. <laughs> there's just so much noise um, and the post-truthness. Post and so part of me is like a libertarian where I'm like, um, you know, you can't st stop people speaking their truth on Facebook, even if it's abhorrent to my heart and, and painful. Mm. And part of me is like, we've just got to get rid of it all. You know, we've got to weed out. The, 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 you know, I read last week on International Holocaust Day, and I should add my grandfather was a survivor of the Holocaust, a kinder transport mm. kid from Berlin, that one in 10 people in Britain don't believe the Holocaust existed. And so, I mean, that's like, mm. what? You know, that's like post-truth, no gatekeeper information mm. stuff. So, you know, there is a value in the guardianship of, of our ideas. Um, and yet there's also a freedom that comes uh, from that. But I do think what you said about, you know, if you're in this podcast, if you're listening, you are a philosopher. And, and I'm, I was always very influenced by a French um, historian of philosophy, I guess, a guy called Pierre Hadot, who wrote a book called Philosophy as a Way of Life, which I'm actually looking at right now. Um, mm. And his claim, which I love to share with my academic friends is that Greek philosophy was always about spiritual practice in the service of civic 
goodness, for want of a better term. Mm. Uh, and Plato was expressly a spiritual teacher, and philosophy was meant to be a set of practices and wisdom techniques as well as ideas. Um, and I think that's just something that we need to return to is, is philosophy is a way of life, not uh, um, a fun thing you do in an afternoon and then back to, you know, destroying the planet. Yeah, yeah. In whatever way that we all yeah. do in some, you know, little way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, part of my spiritual practice is having conversations like these. I think that, um, you know, good, meaningful, ideally transformative, ideally, ideally sacred conversations mm. that really help us see ourselves, each other, the world in new and more beautiful ways is like, you know, part of how this world will change is, is one amazing, beautiful conversation after another. And so um, I think, you know, this was, this was one of them. I feel like we went, or I made numerous discoveries as a result of this conversation. And I want to appreciate you for, for uh, kind of walking in that liminal space with me. Um, And we kind of draw to a close. Is there anything, Nick, that you'd like to share with the audience that's on your heart or in your mind? Well, literally, as you said, is there anything? I just went, something came to me. So I will share it in devotional mm. practice. <laughs> mm-hmm. But before I do, I just want to say, really, uh, this is a true dialogue. I've rethought thought, things. I've I've had different ideas. I've written a whole page of notes um, to go away and mm. think about some more. Um, some of the metaphors that you've used, some of the reframings that, that we've done together has been, and I feel alive. I feel like zesty. I feel like I could go and do something really difficult right now, <laughs> uh, you know, which is, you know, I think what you're saying by these, this dialogue, this dialogical way of being is, is actually important because it brings the energy back. I feel fellowship. I think mm-hmm. it be summarized as, um, which is again, something now from this talk, I want to go and write something on fellowship and, and, and see where that takes me. But what came to me is something that I read in a, in a mystical book uh, a few years ago. Um, and I think it's a, a good sort of palantonic, harmonious uh, pulling of opposites together in this idea of philosophy, public philosophers, um, thinkers, uh, that we all are, which is part of wisdom is to not take up too much space, Hmm. but also to take up enough. Um, And there's something beautiful about not being too humble and and self-effacing and oh i don't know oh no no you you know mm. but neither being too like i've got all the answers i'm the smartest guy in the room or the girl in the room um and that's something i think for a leader for a transformational agent that's, you, the word leader can be mislead misleading is take up your space um and then leave space as well for others and i think mm. that's what i felt in this conversation is a dialogue between two people who can take up space and also give space Mm. I got chills as you read that quote. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to put that somewhere where I can see it regularly. That feels <laughs> very relevant. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Nick, for this conversation. Um, and yeah, uh, th- thank you. Thank you. This is wonderful. Oh, thank you. <laughs>